Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Chaye Sarah. We are in the second year of the triennial reading. So we will be looking at the middle section of every parsha, And that puts us for the triennial reading at Genesis chapter 24. Adam, thank you so very much. Genesis 24. So we are, we are actually dealing here with the story of Rivka. We are dealing with a, um, what we call in biblical approach to study, if we're studying it from a literary perspective, we call this a type scene. So in a movie, you have a type scene. There's the, oh no, she heard a noise, and it's dark. And what do we know from that type scene? What are they going to do if it's in a movie and it's dark and you hear a noise? They're going to go look and see what it is. Because all of us would do that, right? So you're like, don't go down there. So that that's a type scene. We know what's coming. The minute we have the scene set for us, we know what's coming. We don't know the particulars. We don't know the details. There's still suspense, we know what's going to happen. We know something about what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen next, but we're not sure exactly what's going to happen next. That's a type scene. So there is still suspense, right? Those movies are still suspenseful. They tell me I can't watch them anymore, but um, they're suspenseful, but, but it's not completely out of the realm of the familiar. That's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with this uh, chapter 24 narrative. This would have been a scene that everybody would have known the minute you set up the first few lines. And then they would expect it to unfold in a certain way in the ancient Near East. And there's going to be particulars that change. And certainly there's a particular um, emphasis in this story and in the other betrothal type scene that we have. Um, and so I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the pieces that you need. And the one I just described for you from our culture, it has to be dark, right? The person has to be alone, you know, in some kind of significant way, meaning there's no army with them. Um, there has to be a sound. You have to not know what it is, but suspect it's something bad. <laughs> right? Betty Davis. There you go. So um, there are certain things that have to kind of be in place for the scene to be one of these type scenes and for it to work. So what has to be there in a betrothal type scene in the ancient Near East? It has to generally involve travel to a foreign land. Okay. Encounter with the future bride at a well. It involves the drawing of water. It uh, generally involves hurrying or running to bring news of the stranger's arrival on the scene. And then there is always a feast at which the betrothal agreement is concluded. Those are the things that need to be in place for a betrothal scene in the ancient areas. All right. So I'm going to ask you to be thinking about the other ones you know. So in the ancient world, that is where nubile young women hung out. That Because their job was to water the flocks. 
So they were often tenders of the flocks. And so, um, they would, they would be at the well at a certain time of day because that's when the flocks would all come and be ready to be watered. Uh, and so all of the things that you see with women with jugs on their head, <laughs> on their, on their heads, um, or on their shoulders, right? That's because they would draw the water. And would have to carry it. So, you know, if you think about biblical women, if you had a, just an image in your mind, it might be with a huge container on her shoulder or on her head. So, they are very heavy, um, and the water's very heavy. So, let's see what we get with this particular type scene, and then we'll see if we remember some other ones. Alright, somebody read at 24. Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and Adonai had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham now said to his slaves, the elder of his household, who had oversight over all that was good, put your hand under my thigh, so that I may have you swear by Adonai, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, and you midst I dwell. Rather, you shall go to my land, my birthplace, and get a wife for my son Isaac. The slave replied, Suppose the woman does not care to follow me to this land. Should I then bring your son back to the land? Abraham then answered him, Take great care not to bring my son back there. Adonai, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and promised me, saying, To your descendants will I give this land, will send a divine heaven for you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman does not care to follow you, you are released from the oath of mine, only to not bring my son back there. The slave placed his hand under the master Abraham's thigh, and swore to him concerning this matter. All right. So this is the setup. Abraham is old. He was blessed in all things except what? Children. <laughs> Children. Like, right, you know, someone after Isaac to carry on this promise that he's been given that his offspring will be as numerous as the heaven and as the sands of the blah, blah, blah. And, and that you're going to inherit, they're going to inherit the land, right? So he's got to be thinking, remember we talked a few weeks ago about it's like hope, fulfillment, and then boom, a setback. Hope, it's going to happen, and then a setback, right? So here's a setback. It's Abraham clearly in some way thinks he's approaching the end for some reason. And he he realizes he's been blessed in all things and still, though, does not have confidence that that his line is going to continue because Isaac remains unmarried. So he, we've seen before that he worries aloud in the text that his servant Eliezer might be the one who inherits his fortune. Because he has no son, right? So this happened a while ago. Maybe Eliezer will inherit. That's how close Eliezer is to Abraham. That he, he knew, if he didn't have any sons, he was possibly going to leave his entire fortune to Eliezer. This is not a slave, the way we think of slave. Um, it was common, if you did not have a son in the ancient Near East, to adopt someone to become your heir. Even if they were an adult. You could adopt them as your son, and they would become your heir. Often it was a nephew. Um, 
clearly, you know, that's how close Avraham is to Eliezer. So he says to Eliezer, put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by yud heh the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, right, from these local gals. Um, I want you to go back to the land of my birth and get a wife for my son Isaac. So why, why not a Canaanite? They didn't believe in the one God. So if that's one of the criteria, then we need to look for evidence that the folks that Abraham comes from do believe in the one God. Because we don't have a lot of evidence for that, do we? We know he's told Lech Lecha. And that seems like a new thing, this yod heh business. So we let's look for evidence in our story that that's part of why he wants to, to take a wife from there. Um, so, so let's, we'll see if we find any evidence for that. But why is he so adamant that the wife comes from there, but Isaac should not go there? So it's very clear that there's some reason he wants her to be from his family, from his line, and that Isaac not leave where they are now. So Isaac, so Avram's been told that Isaac is going to inherit this land that they're on right now. My bet, what happened with Abraham and Isaac, right? He gets the son. It's amazing. That's a great thing. And then what happens? He's told to kill him. So, or if you listen to Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub's, you know, uh, rendering from the medieval scholars, he misunderstood what the, what the command was, but, but he thinks the command is to kill his son, right? So, so, so after that experience of the knife is raised, Aviva Zornberg has a very intense interpretation of the aftermath of that. The family doesn't recover really from that. Sarah dies. According to Midrash, Sarah dies because of it. She's told what happened and she dies. That's why this begins with, you know, and Sarah's life, she dies. She's dead. We never see, hear from her after the Akedah. So, and then Isaac, we know, is traumatized, right? Because Isaac becomes a really, in some ways, tragic, I think, tragic figure. Um, and so what we're left with is Abraham, who, that had to have been like kind of a crazy, right, thing. And my guess is it, you could understand why he's like, don't let him leave here. Once I came close, right, to this not being realized him inheriting this land. If he goes anywhere else, he's vulnerable. You know, if he leaves his place, his clan, his wealth, his servants, his, you know, his people, I, I really think Abraham is just terrified, you know, and it's like a insecure attachment, but the other way. So that he won't come back because he would be happy to be gone from that. So maybe the relationship is so tainted by the Akedah, that Abraham's afraid if Isaac goes there, Isaac's going to stay with Laban. Where they don't put children on altars and raise knives over them. So he says, don't let him leave here. And Isaac never does, by the way. Isaac is the only patriarch like to kind of like never, never leave. Um, yes, sir. 
um, uh, 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 well, I'll quote it. Uh, to your descendants will I give this land. I assume that's the land where that's where he's right now. And will send a divine emissary before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So he's saying that God is telling him to do this. Okay. So God wants it to be from somewhere else, not from the Canaanites. Okay. So, and again, we could go to why, right? Um, then potentially, what makes, you know, Laban's family different from the Canaanites? Let's, let's keep looking for evidence. So, the, the hand, so the, the servant places his hand under Avraham's thigh. Do we remember why? Testifying, exactly right. So, um, puts his hand, so, you know, we, we put our hand on a Bible and swear, so he puts his hand by Avraham's genitals and swears, right? That's what you do. You put your hand on whatever it is you're swearing by or about. That's why testify comes from testes. Um, and so, you know, they would place their hand on their testes and swear. So in in Greece, like we see that that's you know we get that word from from there. So so that's what's happening here with Avraham and Eliezer. That 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 is what's at stake. If Eliezer does not complete the job, what's at stake is the cutting off, metaphorically, of Avraham's the fruit of his loins will be cut off. So, very interesting. What does Eliezer say to him, verse 5? And what does it imply? What if the woman does not consent to follow me to this land? What does that imply? It implies she will have choice. This is not the norm in the ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture. The norm was the father and or the eldest brother arranged the marriage and the girl did not have an option. Does it have anything to do with who it is who's going there? Eliezer as opposed to... Eliezer will be the agent of Avraham and has full authority to negotiate on Avraham's behalf. So some some scholars, feminist scholars in particular, who want to look pre-patriarchy, say we have a remnant here of ancient Near Eastern matriarchal, matrilineal culture. That it would have been in a matrilineal, matrilocal um, culture, it would have been normative for the husband to go live with the wife's family. Right? That's what matrilocal means. You know, you go to the place where the matriarch, the matriarchal line is. He would have gone to join her family, her tribe, her clan. So Eliezer's question might be a remnant, meaning it's still kind of that way over there. Is it, what if she doesn't want to come? Because it would be normal for her to stay and Jacob to come to her. You you can buy it, you cannot buy it, but it's interesting. um, Because it does kind of seem... Right, that she would be asked and she would make the decision does not sound normative for the patriarchal ancient Near Eastern world. So if she doesn't want to come with me, should I take your son back to live with her clan? 
And Abraham answers, of course, on no account must you take my son back there. On no account. For whatever reasons we might have explored. So God, right, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who promised me this land, as Reuben has read to us, has told me, you will get a wife for my son from there. So Abraham seems to think this is connected to the mission of yod heh and the inheritance of the land, okay? And if the woman does not consent to follow you, you're clear of the oath. But don't take my son back there. So Eliezer puts his hand under Abraham's thigh and swears. So they've now effected the deal. And remember in the ancient Near East, once you set words in motion, you cannot take them back. Whether it's a blessing or an excoriation, a curse. Once they're unleashed, you, you can't undo the conditions that that sets up. So it's now official. It's now done. The swearing has happened. It, it's launched. Now Eliezer must fulfill his word. If she doesn't agree to come, then it, you know, it turns off the alarm. You know, with all the radar, you know, you know, like, you know I, I think about those James Bond movies. You know, that once you say certain things, it turns on the alarm that has all those laser beams. You know what I mean? And if you cross one of those beams, whoop, 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 you know, terrible things happen. So that's what's happened. They've turned on the system. All right. Somebody read it 10. The slave then took ten of his master's camels and laden with an abundant store of his master's goods, got up and went to Aram Naharayim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city at the water well at eventide, at the time when the girls who boil water go forth. And he prayed, Adonai, God of my master Abraham, please bring me luck today. And you are kindness to my master Abraham. Here I am standing at the water pump, and the daughters of the townspeople are going forth to draw water. The girl to whom I say, tip your pitcher and let me drink. And who replies, drink and let me water your camels too. Let her be the one you have designated your servant Isaac. That is how I shall know that you have done a kindness for my master. Okay. So it's an interesting thing, the repetition of the word. What's the word used for kindness here? That you've done me a kindness. Chesed. This word is repeated over and over and over and over in this text. Chesed is associated with Avraham. Avraham is known for his hospitality he is known for chesed. He is known for loving kindness, which is a terrible translation, but it's kind of the one that we use the most in English. Um, chesed is acts of kindness, of loving behavior, like chen, they're not earned. Chen, grace. Grace and chesed are not earned. They are gifted. Right? That when we do something out of chesed, it's not because someone deserves it. Everyone deserves, you know, every, everyone is deserving of chesed and of kindness and whatever. That's the assumption of our tradition anyway. Um, so when I give chesed, it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with me. 
my character, my willingness, my positivity, my generosity. What's interesting is that this is related, what we don't often see or talk about is that, that Eliezer is pointing to God's chesed. Right? Like, let, prove to me you have not ended your chesed to my master, the master of chesed. So it's like this kind of like, what is all this chesed business? Right? So we're going to look at Aviva Zornberg, who has an interesting um, exploration of it. Um, but just kind of hold that in your, in your mind, because it seems to her to directly reflect what Eliezer sets up as the conditions for this will be the right bride for Isaac. Which I haven't really ever thought about before. Because we've looked at this story before, right? I've looked at this story lots of times, as you can imagine. Um, it's always fun to have a new and interesting uh, lens to, to view it through. All right. So Eliezer took 10 of his master's camels. That's a lot of camels. What's on those camels? Gifts. gifts. 10 camels worth of gifts. This is a lot. This is a wealthy, wealthy man Eliezer is representing, and it is obvious to everyone who sees 10 camels loaded with good stuff that Abraham is a sheikh. He's an extraordinarily wealthy and powerful man. So he sets out, and he goes to Aram Naharaim, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down by the well. He's at the well. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Right? Like, we know. Oh, a well. Of course, this must be a betrothal scene. Okay, good. So he... And has them kneel down by the well at evening time when the women come out to draw water. Again, these are unmarried women. And he said, Yudhevafe Elohe Adoni. So Yudhevafe, the God of my master Avraham, grant me. What does he want? Hayom ve'aseh chesed. Right? Do chesed. Im Adoni Avraham, to my master Avraham. Here I stand by the spring as the daughters of the townspeople come out to draw water. Let, where am I? Verse 14. <laughs> All right. So, so put your finger on verse 14 in the Hebrew, even if you don't read Hebrew. Go to verse 14 in the Hebrew and look at the second word, in the Hebrew. You don't have to even know what it is. You see that? Notice there are no vowels underneath it, right? Now, drop down somewhere under the Hebrew, you should see that word vocalized with vowels. Under the paragraph. There's one without vowels in verse 14, underneath or to the side or beside it in parentheses, somewhere you should see it written a little bit differently with vowels. Yes? In the red book, it's right after it. In the red book, it's right after it. Pam, where is it in the green book? Right after it. Right after it. Okay. In my book, it is underneath the paragraph. Right? So somebody remind me 
What is this about? Why? This is what we call a creek teave. Tell me what it is. Those of you who've studied this with me before. What's the issue? What is a creek teave? Cree, read, ktiv, write, written. What does that mean? Oh my goodness. So it means, that's why we're still here. Yay. Job security. So, which is a good thing. Um, it means one thing is written, but that is not what we read it. That's not how we read it. When you go into a synagogue and it's Shabbat and you hear this parsha being read, being chanted out loud, you will not read what is written. Because it's wrong, God forbid. What, what's the problem? Why wouldn't you read it as it's written? Ha, 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 thank you. Thank you, Sarah. What is a na'ar? A young man. A youth who is male. That is what your text says. That's what the Torah text says. Right? Let the youth male that I say to her, blah, 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 blah. So there is either a scribal error here, which is once you're copying a text over and over and over and over and over and over and over, it happens a lot. So a scribal error, perhaps. We've talked in the past a little bit about what if it isn't an error? So what's written, the ktiv is na'ar, what we read is na'ara, which is youth, a youth, female. And when would that have been added to the reading? The Masoretes. The Masoretes. We read the Masoretic text. Right? You see this word? You'll say, um, I can't. I should. I should be able to. Um, early medieval period? So for a long time it was yeah. red male. No. For a long time it was red female. Was- they noted, they, they make the text version that we have. Torah te- Torahs were just scrolls. So we, they preserved that we that we that this is written, but this is what's read, and that's how they note it so the in the Masoretic text. The scroll would have had both, or the Masoretic text added the second one, added the female. So, it, so the Masoretes are the ones who say, even though Naar is what's written, we read Naara. Well, so I'm saying medieval times, for a long time before that, it wasn't in there. So. The Masoretes claim that they are preserving the tradition as it's been. So when they write down Na'ara, they're saying, we've always read it, Na'ara, even though Na'ar is what's written. So is that used to uh, condone gay Jews believe that gayness is fine? I mean, is that ever used? Never is it 
stated in any place that this is what's intended. Na'ar. It's, it's always agreed that what's meant is na'ara. People who want to find evidence for maybe things aren't as clear as we make them out to be, say, how do we know this wasn't intended? And nobody claims, even people who are trying to queer the text, even people who are querying the text do not claim that Isaac was given a, a male youth. That's not what they claim. But we read a piece from Queering the Text, which is a book. Um, it was Queering the Text or Torah Queries. I think it was Torah Queries. From Torah Queries, it said um, that possibly this is saying something about Rivka. So let's let's hold that in our minds that that it's purposeful that she's described as Naar even though it's obvious that she's na'ara, because it's saying something about what kind of woman she is. <laughs> unlikely. Unlikely. So, so something about gender, something about the qualities of gender, that she's called na'ar, and here's the thing, it's not once. It's so it happens again. This is why they don't attribute it to just a scribal error. Because once, okay, they left off the hay. It happens. You forget a hay. A yud becomes a vav. It happens. But twice? Alright, so let's, so let's think about what might that mean if, if it's in any way a tradition that's kind of intentional, what might it mean? La 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 la. So, let the na'ar, but it means na'ar, to whom I say, please lower your jar that I may drink, and who replies, Drink and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have decreed for your servant Isaac. Thereby shall I know that you have dealt in chesed with my master. So the jugs are very heavy. If she's got it up ready to carry, he's saying he's a stranger he arrives. He, she has no reason to help him other than hospitality. So that would be normal in the ancient areas. We know that, right? Hospitality is critical. It's very important. Everything is based on hospitality. So it would make sense that if he, even as a stranger says, would you please lower your jar that I may have something to drink? He's saying, maybe we would understand that it would be normal for her to say, Okay, you know, and out of hospitality, lower it and pour for him. That we could understand. He wants something else. When I ask her that, let the one who, who was meant for Isaac say, not only will, should you drink, but I will water all of your camels. A bit outrageous. So he's talking to himself. He is talking to God saying, please let it be that the one you intend for Isaac will say, A, so that I know it's her. How am I supposed to know it's her? But he sets up kind of an odd 
That's a pretty odd request. In other words, he didn't say, when it's the one that's meant for Isaac, you know, may I have a feel, you know, like, let the trees sway slightly to the left, right? You know, he says, when I ask her, can I have a drink, may she say this exact thing in return? How likely is that? Come on. So A, it's a little bit impossible of a, te- of a, of a thing. But also, it seems, according to Aviva Zorenberg, that Eliezer is saying something here about feeling like God's chesed for Abraham might be absent and has been for some time. Show me you're not done with chesed to my master. And if we believe Aviva Zorenberg that his statement is something about God's chesed feeling like it's been removed, it feels like that thing we were talking about that, that after the Akedah, the family is just not in a good place at all. And so Eliezer, according to the Midrash, says, you started something, you finish it. You started in chesed, you promised chesed, you've acted in chesed, and then, you know, you, in parenthetically, you know, this whole crazy, wonky, sideways thing, finish it, you, you hey vav hey. So, I love, you gotta love the Midrash, right? <laughs> Only the Midrash. So, so, so then, then, if that's what he wants proof of is chesed, it makes a little more sense that the test, the litmus test is, when I ask her to lower her heavy jug and give me water, let her show evidence that she's a person of chesed. Because that's what my family needs. Not just a bride who comes from the right lineage or the right place, right? That Eliezer's setting up the test, not God. Eliezer seems to be saying, if you are truly living into chesed with my master, if you're not done with cheseding my master, then give Isaac a bride of chesed because they're all hurting really badly. Ah, it doesn't yet. That doesn't. That doesn't. But but good for keeping us on track. All right. So good read. So um. All right. He'd scarcely finished speaking when Rivka. Dun, 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 here comes Rivka. Who is she? Born to Betuel, the son of Milka, the wife of Abraham's brother Nachor. Yay! Right now the audience knows it's. Her. She's from the right lineage. Comes out with her jar on her shoulder, and the maiden was Vehanar, and the Naar was very what? Of course. Of course she was. Because in the ancient Near East, your hero, your heroine has to be beautiful, a sign of divine favor. She was very beautiful. Betula. What is Betula? I was hoping to trick somebody. Come on. Huh? A what? A virgin. Okay. So if it means virgin, why are these next two words here? Ve'ish lo yada. And a man she had never known. Oh, does it? 
It means maiden. It means unmarried maiden. And generally, it's assumed that a maiden has never known a man, right? But bitulah does not automatically convey that, does it? It wouldn't, if it did, you wouldn't need the next two words. The, the, the Torah is never redundant. Never. And, and if it is, it's for a reason. So it's, it, not only is she a maiden, the Torah wants to be extraordinarily clear. She is a maiden and a virgin. Has to be. If she's gonna be the matriarch, has to be. Yes? So, side note, Bitula, this is what Mary was. So when it is translated, virgin, maiden, unmarried, maiden. All right. So she, she went to the spring and filled her jar and came up and the servant ran toward her and said, please let me sip a little water from your jar. Dun, 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 dun. Now we're waiting, right? They're going down the stairs. <laughs> right? So the, the suspense builds. What will she say? And when he drinks his fill, so we're like, is she, is she, what is she going to say? So she says, I will also draw for your camels until they finish drinking. <gasps> it's a horror. Quickly emptying her jar into the trough, she ran back to the well to draw and she drew for all his camels. Ten camels having made a desert journey. But wouldn't any... any who sees a gentleman come with ten cam- camels laden with stuff, want to do the same? Susan suggests, <laughs> perhaps this points to another aspect of Rivka's character, not just chesed, but ambitious. a Yiddish cup. <laughs> that she's ambitious, that she's smart, that she sums it up in a second and a half, Ten Hummers filled with fur coats and jewelry and Prada shoes. Let me see what I can do for this guy. <laughs> All right. Can we go back to Nar? Sure. Uh, would not that, if it's not an accident, mm-hmm. would not signify that she had knowledge and intelligence like a young man? Correct. Yes. I think this, so this I think is part of, if it's not an accident, then many scholars believe it is a, is, is pointing to characteristics related to gender stereotypes in the ancient world that Rivka violates. In a good way, we would say. They might not, right? But she's smart. She's not that women aren't smart in the ancient world, but she's overtly ambitious, right? That she is outgoing. 
and I was going to get there because we just read the sentence where it said she has him. She runs to the well. She draws more water and she runs back and she waters 10 camels after a, a desert journey. Do you know how much water that is? She does Pilates. She does Pilates. She is more like a Na'ar in how strong she is. She is physically strong. She runs and she's running with heavy stuff and doing it to water 10 camels. That's, that's physically a lot of stamina and strength that's required. She, and it's her idea. She's independent. She's ambitious, right? She's, and, and even if we don't see her as ambitious, she's strong enough to hurriedly Draw water for 10 camels. They drink a lot of water after a desert trip. Gallons and gallons and gallons each. All right. Also a good test. Um, you want someone healthy to bear children. Yep. So it's in the test, testament to her strength. Um, sure, she's hale and hearty. A good farm stock. All right. Beautiful. You what? And beautiful. And beautiful, of course. Must be. Must be. All right. Which is why I love that movie, Total Randomness, but that movie Shrek, the the original Shrek, the end of that movie when she's going to turn into her true self. Is it going to be the princess or the troll? Well, of course we know it's going to be the princess, that that's her true self, right? And, of course, the ending is that she she turns into the troll. And um, I just love that. I love that film for for that reason the message being to kids right that beauty is not culturally defined love that yep yeah and i don't know that we see it again now that I think about it, I have to think about it, but I, I don't think we see this again. We see smart, Devorah, you, you know, people, Yael, you know, Judith, people who are warriors and judges and they lead troops, but which implies a certain strength, but we don't really see, you know, a physical description like this because it's gratuitous. Like why say this? That she hurriedly did that for, te- you know, it, it has to be pointing to something about, something about what that means about her. Right. So the man, oh, somebody read it, 21. The man, meanwhile, stood gazing at her, silently wondering whether the Lord had made his errand successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring, weighing a half shekel, and two gold bands for her arms, ten shekels in weight. Pray tell me, he said, whose daughter are you? Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She replied, I am the daughter of Bituel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she went on, There is plenty of straw and feed at home, and also room to spend the night. The man bowed low in homage to the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his steadfast faithfulness from my master. For I have been guided on my errand by the Lord to the house of my master's kingdom. All right. So the man, meanwhile, stands Mishta'e. And Aviva Zorenberg uh, quotes Rashi, who has a long list of words that mishta'e means. And it's not just gazing. Kind of dumbstruck. You know, um, 
<laughs> thunderstruck. Like it, it, there's all these words. I can't remember them all. Um, that Rashi uses. Um, that that are associated with mishta'e. So it's a very complicated s- s- uh, psyche moment that Eliezer's in, right? So he doesn't know who she is, who she is yet. We know. The audience is like, yay, it's her. She's from the right lineage. He doesn't know that. So we're, he's standing there like, wait a minute. She gave the right answer. Could this be a cruel joke that she gives the right answer and she's going to be from the wrong family? Right, you know, so he, he's in this moment of kind of almost afraid to hope, but she gave the right answer, but God has not exactly been amazingly swell with Avram recently. You know, like, so it's a moment of great angst and excitement all at the same time for Eliezer as he watches. It takes a long time to water 10 camels till they're done drinking. He's standing there a long time. You can imagine, right, all the, we could do a bibliodrama and sit here for a minute and let each of you think and then each of you do a one minute, you know, dialogue of what's going on inside you right now as Eliezer. It's that kind of a pregnant, um, pun intended, pause. So he's wondering, right, whether God has made this errand successful or not. That or not is even there. Right says that Eliezer, even with the right answer given him, is not sure that God is acting in chesed. When the camels had finished drinking, a long time later, the man took a gold nose ring weighing a half shekel and two gold bands for her arms, ten shekels in weight. It's a good amount of money. That is a nice gift. And says... Pray tell me, whose daughter are you, and is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Dun, 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 dun. So, is she from the right family, and what is he testing further? Hospitality. She's got chesed. She's strong as a na'ah. Does she have hospitality? All right. So, does she hesitate? Does she say, oh, let me get my iPhone out and call my dad and see, right? She does not hesitate. She replies, like a na'ar. I am the daughter of Betuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And the audience goes, yay. And she went on. There is plenty of straw and feed at home and also room to spend the night. She somehow believes she has the authority to tell this man he may come home with her and lodge at her house and they will feed his animals. In what patriarchal society does a an unmarried young Na'ara have the right to bring home a strange man and his ten camels and say, they'll be lodging here tonight and uh, we'll be feeding the camels. Maybe she was raised right and she knew. Ah, so what is being raised right? That's how her parents... And what does right mean? Define right. The, the hospitality. Hospitality. 
chesed. So maybe it's not that she has authority. Maybe it's that she's had it modeled for her that the right thing to do when somebody comes strange and no place to sleep is to offer them your home. Clear evidence to Eliezer that she is a woman of hospitality from a family who has raised her to be hospitable and to be a person of chesed, very possibly. This is where Elise Goldstein, in her book Revisions, Reading Torah Through a Feminist Lens, says more evidence of a matriarchal, matrilocal society where she would have had authority as a daughter to say who comes home to mother's clan and mother's house. Okay? We don't know. But clearly more behavior that suggests she's behaving pretty strongly and with authority. The man bowed low in homage to whom? Because now he understands that Adonai indeed is involved and this is correct. This is the correct young woman. And he says, Blessed be yud vav hey God of my master, who has not withheld God's chesed. Chasdo. Lo azav chasdo. amito, Who has not withheld God's own chesed and emet. Chesed ve'emet. Right here it's paired. We paired in our liturgy. Chesed ve'emet. Yes? Chesed, you know, so however we've translated that, emes. What's emes? Truth. What does it mean as a quality of God? Are we going to worry that God's going to lie? So what is a quality of God that might be related to emet? Faithfulness. God who is faithful. Meaning in relationship, loyal. All right. For I have been guided on my errand by has to be Yudhevavhe, right to the house of my master's kinsman. Yay! All right, now we have to know because we know that there's one more condition. What's the other condition? She's got to come with. So we're not done yet with the betrothal scene. We're not finished. So 28. The audience is like, but will she go? 28. The girl then ran and related these things to her mother's household. Now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man of the spring. When Laban saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and heard his sister Rebecca say, This is what the man told me. He went to the man, who was still standing by his camels at the spring. Come in, O blessed of Adonai, said he. Why stand outside when I cleared the house and also made space for the camels? So he ushered the man into the house, unsaddled the camels, and gave him straw and fodder, and brought water in to wash his feet and those of the men with him. But when food was put in front of him, the man said, I will not eat until I have had my say. He, Laban, said, speak. All right. So the Na'al runs to tell... Who? What's happened? The mother's household. More for Elise Goldstein and other scholars. um, More evidence that this is a matrilocal, matrilineal culture. She goes to tell her mother's clan what's happened. 
because that's how things are there. Okay. Possibly. What if it's not evidence of matrilineal, matrilocal stuff? What, what does it mean? Let's say we're in dealing with a patriarchy and she goes to tell her mother's household. What does it mean? Father's dead. Possibly he's not around because who comes out of the house to deal with it? The brother. And when he saw the nose ring and the bands on his sister's arms, and when he heard his sister Rebecca say, thus the man spoke to me, he went up to the man who was still by the camels. So what does Laban see? The gift she's given, and what else does he see? Ten camels laden with Prada. He sees wealth. And says at that moment, Bo Baruch Yudhevavhei. Come in, O blessed of Yudhevavhei. Why do you remain outside when I have made the house ready and a place for the camels? Alright, so either Lavan is part of a family that has raised Rivka, right? And he's a man of hospitality and graciousness and chesed. And so invites the man in. Reuben, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm just want to comment. He's also talking about uh, uh, the one God. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Reuben has found evidence that supports the reading that Abraham wants a wife from there, from that family, because they are already worshipers of the one God. To your point, Susan. O blessed of Yudhevavhei suggests, because Eliezer hasn't said who he worships, right? Suggests that this family already are worshipers of Yudhevavhei. So do you remember when we had the Lech Lecha go thingy and we said what, and I said what I don't usually pay attention to and what we don't normally pay attention to is that they're already on the way when they settle down somewhere in Haran? They're already on the way. Why? Some scholars want to say because they're already worshipers of Yudhei Vavhei and are on their way because they can't stay like where they were, right? They were not, they were not anymore holding with the religious traditions of the people around them. And Terach knows he needs to take his family and leave. So it is Terach who, who teaches Avraham about Yudhei Vavhei and other people in his family too. So that's why Abraham wants somebody who's from Terach. How do we get to Terach? Through, right, the lineage that we had of Nahor and Milka. They're all from Terach. He wants a Terachide woman on both sides. Rivka is descended from Terach on both sides. Father's side and mother's side. Okay. So that's that's one Reading is it? It's all about the Yudhei Vavhei connection, and someone who's been raised in that. Okay, so so where are we? Speak, speak. Right. So, what do we know of Lavan from later readings? Is this because he's a man of Chesed and hospitality? Do you think knowing what we know from later? Unlikely. What we know of him later, what he does to Yaakov, right? What, what happens at Stom, Stom and Gemara. Remember we read? He split, you know, he wanted the good land. He picked first. Abraham said, whatever. Like, I'm not interested in wealth, right? So probably, oh, um, sorry, that was Lot. Um, so 
what we know of Lavon later is it's unlikely that this is yeah, and he also, his motivation. It also starts out that when he saw the, all the riches, <laughs> you know, he commenced with this. Okay, so maybe he sees, right? So, But the question is, is that the motivator or not? Some people say it wouldn't matter. If there was no camels, he would still have invited him in. You know, like, but so that's, that's the question is, what's the motivation? We don't know. You said that the, this is not redundant in any way or not. This, it's always there for a reason. Ah, so he sees 10 camels and that triggers the next thing? Or why do we even mention the 10 camels? Okay. He sees the nose ring and the bracelet. <laughs> right? Exactly. Then he said. I am Avraham's servant, he began. Somebody start there, 34. I am the slave of Abraham, said he, and Adonai has blessed my master exceedingly and made him rich, giving him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and young. Sarah, my master's wife, bore him a son in her old age, and my master has given him everything he owns. So the boy's going to be wealthy. Go on. My master adjured me, saying, You must not choose a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I now live. Go, rather, to my father's people, to my relations, and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, what if the woman will not follow me? He answered, Adonai, before whom I have walked, will send an angel with you who will clear the way for you. He will take a wife for my son from my clan, from my father's family. You will be free from your obligation only if you go to my relations and they refuse you. In that case, All right. So I came today to the spring and I said, O God of my master Abraham, if you would indeed grant success to the errand on which I am engaged as I stand by the spring of the water, let the young woman who comes out to draw blah, 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 blah. I had scarcely finished praying in my heart when Rivka came out with her jar on her shoulder and I asked for the drink and she said, drink and I'll also water your camels. And I inquired of her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Betuel, son of Nahor, who Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bands on her arms. He switches the order of things a bit. Eliezer. Eliezer wants to make sure things are represented as kosher. And he's doing everything by the book. And so he says that like he's, he immediately, uh, asked her lineage, right? And that, that, beca- that was the only reason he gave her the gifts. He wants to make sure he's being clear that he has no ulterior motives, that it had to come from this family, that he wants her genealogy. And that's why he, he gave her the gifts. And so now if you mean to treat my master with what? Chesed, tell me, and if not, tell me also that I may know like what to do at this point, right? So once again, he's asking for Chesed. Levan, so then Lavan and Betuel answered, 
The matter was decreed by yud Vavhe. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Here is Rivka. Take her and go. Let her be a wife to your master's son as yud Vavhe has spoken. So, well, it clearly has been ordained by yud Vavhe that she should marry the inheritor of Avraham's fortune. Who are we to stand in the way of a decree of the Almighty. Take her. So the servant brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rivka, and he gave presents to her brother and her mother. Then he ate and the men with him ate and drank and they spent the night, right? So you have to conclude the deal with the meal. Then, uh, because this is the betrothal meal. Right, this seals the deal. Then he ate, blah, blah, blah. when they arose the next morning, he said, give me leave to go to my master. He's excited. He wants to get home. He wants to get home. Maybe he thinks Abraham thinks he's on his deathbed and he needs to hurry. But in any case, he's, he's clear he wants to go. He wants to take her and go. But her brother and her mother said, let the maiden remain with us 10 days. Then you may go. Why? Why 10 days? Ah, to get a trousseau together. The bride is feted in Jewish tradition for how long is the couple feted? Please. No. <laughs> Seven. Sheva brachot. Sheva brachot are said at Birkat Amazon, the grace after meals, for a week after the wedding of a couple. Vestiges, right, of when a bride would have had a seven-day at least uh, festival honoring her marriage, right? You know, she's betrothed. There would have been her trousseau to get together and many, many rituals around fetting the bride. Uh, you don't just marry her and take her, right? That's unseemly. You're betrothed and then you take her the next morning? Like, really? Where's her party, right? Where? <laughs> um, so... He said to them, do not delay me now that Yudevave has made my errand successful. Give me leave that I may go to my master. And what do they say? Let us call the girl and ask for her reply. So now possibly another hitch, right? This is what we've been waiting for. She must agree. Elise Goldstein points to this being yet another indication that the mother is involved in saying, uh-uh, you don't get to just take her. She must decide for herself that that is, you know, not likely to have happened in a patriarchal society. Whether we buy it or not, it's interesting. So in any case, she is empowered to make the decision by her family. Maybe they know her and they know it ain't going to do any good to tell her she's got to go because she's more like a na'ah than a na'ah. And if they do that, that is not going to work out well. And they use Na'ar again. And they use Na'ar again. <laughs> Nubile young women, 12, 13, 14. She could be still very androgynous. She could be very much not yet developed. A late bloomer. Could be. Could be. So um, they call her to Rivka and said to her, will you go with this man? Does she hesitate? Does she equivocate? Does she say, well, what if? No. How about? No. She says, 
I will. She's pretty fearless. She is very much like whom? Abraham. Yes. If you sat with it for a moment, it comes. She's very much like Avraham. Lech lecha. Does Abraham say, well, where exactly? And I don't know. There's not a lot of gas in the car. I don't have a map, right? He goes. Will you go? I will. She's very much like Abraham. And that, say some commentators, is why it's so important that she go to this family. Because Yitzchak, not so much like Avraham. And we see from Yitzchak that he, he doesn't turn out to be exactly the sheikh that his father was. Or the leader that his father was. Who's needed in this family? A strong woman who's more like the patriarch than his son is. That's who the line has to come through. That's who has to be the mother of the next generation. And if we buy, just just imagine, Elise Goldstein says, just, just go with it for a second, that she's raised in a matrilineal, matrilocal society, and she's married into this family that doesn't do things that way. Does it change how we understand her picking one son over the other to be the inheritor? Susan says no. Pam says yes. Why does it, so how does it change it? If she comes from a matrilineal, matrilocal culture, she has twins. She manipulates who's going to be the heir. Does it change how we understand that story if she comes from a matrilineal? How does it change it, Laura? She's not conniving. She's the boss. Somebody's got to pick. She come, and who's supposed to pick? The mother. Yeah, but who does she pick? She doesn't pick the order. She picks the one she thinks is most likely to be a good patriarch. She doesn't, we don't know why. But, it's, you know, the idea, if she's not the powerful one in the family and she's doing that, it's seen as subversive and sneaky, as opposed to she gets, she's the one who decides. I think it really does change how we read what she does. If we believe she has grown up empowered and seen other women make the important decisions. Then it makes sense. So she's like, okay, I'm in this patriarchal world. I don't get to say, but pfft, I'm not giving that up just because they say I, nah, <laughs> right? You know, like, I don't think so. All right. So our story ends, uh, right? That she says she'll go. She doesn't need her bridal party. She doesn't need all the business and the fetting and the whatever, 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 the hotel party. She's our, she's fine. So they sent off their sister Rivka and her nurse along with Avraham's servant and his men. Often uh, wealthy women were given their um, nursemaids as a gift at their wedding. The woman who nursed her and took care of her, her wet nurse, um, her body servant in that way would have been given to her as a gift at her wedding. So it makes perfect sense. And they blessed Rivka and said to her, Oh sister, may you grow into thousands of myriads. May your offspring seize the gates of their foe. Rivka and her maids arose. So she's taking more maids with her, mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went his way. We're not going to go any further.
Um, but we know that at the end of this narrative, we are told that Isaac takes her into the tent of his mother. <laughs> you read ahead. <laughs> he takes her into the tent of his mother and was comforted after his mother's death. That's the last line of this chapter. It is only in Rivka coming and bringing her into the tent of his mother, into the intimate space of Sarah's intimate private life. Only when he brings Rivka in there is he finally comforted in the loss of his mother. I just want to say, I feel that I find that image so moving because it feels like marriage is a continuation of mother's love, which is a very profound love. Tell me what's tell me more about it being moving. Well, it seems like he took her to, in a way, what was his sacred place, which was his mother's tent. Um, and it's just beautiful that it says he loved her and found comfort. So it's not just a sexual love; it's a spiritual love. It's a, like I said, it's a, it's a different kind of love, like a mother for the child love. So it's it's more complex. And very uncharacteristic of Torah. Right? We don't hear about love, emotion. Torah's not interested in emotion. Torah doesn't care about emotion. It's what happens. And a commitment and loyalty. We don't hear about love. It's very clear that for Yitzchak, this is a, a marriage of love and respect. And also, it compensates for the loss of his mother. And there's continuity between his mother and Because the only way ever we really are comforted after loss is when we open again to love. And it's hard to open after loss. Right? We guard the heart, we're shut down, we're afraid, because we don't want to feel that again. And yet, that, that's what's necessary to, to experience comfort. And tr- true comfort, right? Which is, it's not a great word, English. The English comfort is not a great word. Aviva Zornberg explores more of the Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew, um, Linachem, you know, that that word has more resonances than comfort. Um, there's a wholeness, there's a rightness, there's a, you know, way of moving forward, there's a synthesis, you know, that happens, um, only with Rivka coming into his tent, and it provides continuity with Sarah. And it may also heal the, uh the wounds that you were speaking of before that the family had suffered that by her coming there kind of closes that um, and lets them move forward after the all of the, the craziness that had happened before. And is it going to get less crazy? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's Genesis. Mapitom, right? The craziness continues, but there's this moment of respite. Right from kind of the cosmic chaos, right, that's been visited on this family who's still successful, right? It reminds me in many ways of West LA. It's like, even in these great big homes where everyone is so successful, 
I see them in my office. We're not, we don't escape the pain and, and confusion and existential angst and suffering because we're successful, because we're wealthy, right? I think it's something else that Torah is lifting up or that we don't pay attention to very often is Avraham has everything. He's even got a son now, right? Isaac is going to inherit. He's got everything, but he still misses his mom. All the money Avraham has can't buy him the touch of his mother again, her regard, her care for him, the way she loves him. There's nothing that can replace that or buy that. It's going to be something else that's non-material that moves him into a place of, of okayness, which is love, which I think is a beautiful thing that Torah is making very clear. Um, and that we still deal with today. We still think money buys happiness. We say it all the time that it doesn't, but really, a lot of us really, come on, secretly believe if we only had, right, then life would be so much happier. So I'm going to leave you with some uh, stuff. If you'll pass on the packet. Thank you, Robert. That That's two packets. So there, if you look at them, they are unevenly done so that you can tell where one packet ends and the next begins. It's two pages. Um, so you can take these. Aviva Zorenberg is on here about chesed. And um, I've given you something. I just want, I'll close with this one little, little tiny piece. How much was ever said about how happy it was just to get out of the house? Well, we don't know. Knowing who Laban is, though, it might have been very much the case. Two pages. You need two pages. We're giving you a packet, not a sheet. People are pulling them apart. Lovely. Because they're Jews. Following instructions, isn't it? All right. So, huh? Uh, you know, because Amy doesn't know how to work the copy machine uh, extraordinarily well, that's why it's not stapled. I need Adam to do things for me because the copy machine hears me coming and knows. So, um, so I just want to look at this one piece that I gave you just quickly, and not not a lot. I just want to close with it. And it is Rebecca and Chesed at the top of your page. Yeah, which top of which page? Look, hold on. <laughs> right, it says Roman numeral two and then Roman numeral three. So what we're told when she comes home with, with the, with Eliezer is that she she encounters Yitzchak from afar because Yitzchak has come out lasuach basadeh, and there's reams of commentary written on what that means to converse in the field. Well, you're not conversing with someone if you're in the field, right? So the rabbis read this as he's meditating, he's praying, um, and so uh, that's why they have him being the evening prayer guy. Right, the transition into evening. That, that's the tefillah created by Yitzchak. And we see it right here. Right? He's coming out in the afternoon to, to, uh, basadeh, uh, to, 
to greet the, the evening. All right, so look at met number three, Isaac in meditation, right? Actually, the definition of the word for what Isaac does in the field, lasuach, is contested. Rabbi Larry Bach, in his partial study for the Institute for Jewish Spirituality last year, beautifully explored the different interpretations of this word, including conversing with God, which is Rashi's take, going for a stroll, which is radak, Rabbi David Kimchi, and or planting growing things. That's Rashbam. In all of these readings, Isaac emerges as a deeply spiritual person walking out to the fields to connect to some version of the divine himself and the world. The fact that Isaac is in the process of this spiritual activity when his eyes lift to see Rivka approaching does not seem to be accidental. Those of us that meditate and pray have felt one of the clearest byproducts of that practice, a tender, sensitive, and open heart. After long meditation retreats, I often find myself, she's saying, Rabbi Yael Shai, for a certain period of time, resisting killing bugs in my apartment and finding the people around me particularly beautiful. She's, and she, it cuts off here, but, and it's not that meditation causes love to happen. Meditation causes us to be open prayer. And I'm, I'm not even saying that. I, I want to leave you with this because I really do believe that it's true that this story is something about the willingness to be open, the practice of being open. Rivka's open to the adventure. She's open to the stranger. She's open to serving. Yitzchak is open in the field when he lifts his eyes. And because he's open, love can come in. Love can enter. And I think so often in our Western culture, we think love happens to us. And it's not true. We cultivate the readiness for love of all kinds. I don't mean romantic love. We cultivate a heart ready for the experience of loving each other, behaving in loving ways with one another. It doesn't just happen. So this Shabbat, I just want to encourage us to 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 reflect on what are some of the ways that work for us. You know yourself. What are the ways that work for you? To really allow the heart to soften. We're about to do it right now. 11.15 is our sitting practice. To allow the heart to soften so that we can experience more moments of loving uh, interaction with, with one another. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.